Good morning. My name is Kent Lotus. I am not one of the pastors here at Mercer Island Covenant Church. This morning, we continue in our series through the book of Romans. If you'd like to follow along in today's scripture reading, now is the time to get out your Bible or your favorite electronic app and follow along on the screens. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible, Romans, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Romans, chapter 1, 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they know God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning. Is this on? Okay, great. I am Peter. I am one of the pastors here. <clears throat> Thanks for being here with us. Uh, we are going through our series in the book of Romans, and the series is called The Reason for Grace. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, this is sort of the beginning of connecting the title of the series to the content of Romans. Um, I have a couple of goals today. What I want to do is I want to remind you today why, if you are, why you are a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, I want to suggest to you today that you should be one. And third, if you feel that you are already a pretty good Christian, I want, I want to encourage you to consider a revival in your own life and a renewal of your mind and understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's sort of my uh, pastor goal. Uh, as a preacher, as a teacher, uh, let me begin by going back a couple of verses. Last week, Butt's sermon, by the way, Butt's sermon was great, wasn't it? That's pretty good. I uh, really enjoy that. Uh, he's very charming and charismatic. And uh, 
he talked about this idea of a righteousness that's revealed by faith. Now, we're going to define what righteousness means a couple of chapters later. Uh, but he did mention that the righteousness of God is contained in this thing we call the gospel or the good news. And that we ought not to be ashamed of it because it is the very power of God. Now, imagine that you are an all-powerful God. That you can do anything you want at any time. And one of the things you wanted to do was to save this species, this, this, this humanity. You could do anything you want. You're all-powerful. And the thing you choose to do is to send your son to die for, the, for these people. And in, in that news, in that act, is contained the very power of God. It's not something that I readily understand. It's something that I'm eager to exposit today. Now, one of the ideas we're going to be talking about is this idea of salvation. What does it mean to be saved? What it means is that we are all, according to Scripture, headed in a certain direction. That there's a cliff, we're running towards it, we're walking towards it, we're crawling towards it, we're skipping towards it, we're being dragged towards it. But inevitably, we're headed towards this cliff, and we're going to fall. And the consequences of that fall is death, it's obvious, it's destruction. But God is going to save us, and what that means is, He's going to change the direction. So that we no longer fall off that cliff, we're not headed in that way anymore. And that's what it means to be saved. That all of us were headed in a certain direction. And it's God's job. And He's going to exercise His power to change that course for us. Okay? It's God absorbing the consequences of that. The way the Scriptures puts it is the wages of sin is death. Um, as you read uh, through Romans chapter 1, I want to encourage you to read beyond verse 25, which is where we're going to stop today. Next week, uh, if you read on, you're going to see that the content of next week's sermon is a, uh, potentially a little bit sensitive to younger audiences. And so if you are a parent of young kids who are going to be in the service, you may want to read ahead and make sure uh, you're okay with your kids uh, being in the service next week for the sermon part of it. Um, it's not going to be crazy, uh, just a fair warning. And um, I would also say that it's going to be a great week to bring uh, your non-Christian friends. Not that today isn't, for example. Uh, but it's going to be, I think, uh, something that's uh, felt as especially relevant and maybe interesting. And um, if you are a strong sort of uh, Bible-believing evangelical Christian, I think it's going to be a great time of teaching and a, a fresh way of thinking about the passage. I think also simultaneously it's going to be refreshing and it's going to be winsome and uh, attractive just the way Jesus was uh, to those who aren't Christians next week. And so there it is. Uh, this week, Paul, what he does as he gets ready uh, to open up the letter to the church in Rome, is that he is going to tell the story of the fall. At some point, humanity fell. And he's going to begin to 
unpack how that happened. How did things go wrong? And it's my personal reading of this passage that he's not talking about a specific incident per se. He's not talking about a specific group that's especially more condemned, but he's talking about the general population, the whole of humanity. How did mankind or humankind fall? Okay, and as we track with Paul in this story, again, as I said before, I want to remind you why you are a Christian, that you should be one, and why even if you think you are one, you need renewal in your life. And I want to do it by sharing two points. One, conservation of worship. And two, consolation of wisdom. Okay, conservation of worship. Um, as I was studying this passage, I really, really wrestled with it. I uh, wrote a sermon on almost these exact passages exactly eight years and one month ago. And I reread this sermon, and it's terrible. <laughs> and the reason it's terrible is because Paul's writing style is terrible. There is so much content here. So many loaded words. There was no focus to the sermon. I was all over the map precisely because I was trying to stay true to the text. Right? You read this. It begins with the wrath of God. What the heck is the wrath of God? You can spend many sermons on the wrath of God. It's being revealed. What? The wrath of God is being revealed? How is that happening? Right? From heaven. It's like shooting down from the sky. It's like a summer blockbuster movie. (laughs) Against all the godlessness and wickedness, or the word unrighteousness, of people. I look around, I don't see all this ungodlessness and wickedness in this room. Y'all look pretty shiny to me. Right? Who suppress the truth by their wickedness or unrighteousness. These are loaded words, people. And so I can spend probably a couple of weeks on each of these words. It would take us forever to get through just a couple of verses here. But here we're going to try to tackle, I think, seven or eight of them. Um, And so I I need you to bear with me a little bit uh, because I'm not going to go through... Uh, all of the words, and I'm not going to make the same mistake I made 80 years ago. That'd be a sad story if I was uh, the same level preacher I was 80, 80 years and one month ago. So what I really wrestled with this week in my preparation was trying to find the thread, the storyline. So you ask yourself, what's the story uh, in these verses? What's the one thread that's kind of going through it? And I prayed hard. I wrestled hard. I studied hard. I read a lot. And uh, what I came to was the story of addiction. Here, Paul, I think, if he had the psychological language for it in his time, he might have even said it himself. But really, Paul lays out a pattern of addiction. Now, uh, I am aware, I've counseled with many people who struggle with addiction. It's a very real and powerful issue in people's lives. I don't want to make light of it. I don't want to just use it as a metaphor uh, to uh, preach a sermon. 
And so let me just acknowledge that from up front. Um, I did read a book about it. It's um, uh, a great book that was recommended to me by a um, recovering alcoholic. And the book that uh, I drew a lot of um, help from, not for this sermon, but for in, in my own life, is a book called Addiction and Grace, if you want to read it. It's by Gerald May. And he basically takes the approach, the angle, that we are all filled and consumed with addictions in our lives. That we don't just have alcoholics or drug addicts or, or eating disorders in our midst. But we have a, all of humanity addicted uh, to various things. And that part of what it means to be human is to be an addict. And so he really uh, dives into what addiction is and how they're is grace in the midst of that. So I say all of that as a way to qualify my use of this uh, storyline, this addiction cycle. So what is, what is an addiction? Let me give you some really easy, uh, uh, an easy way to think about it. When I was doing my research on addiction, there's so much complexity and too many opinions about it. I think this will boil it down for us. Um, an addiction is when you start with a legitimate need. It can be a place of pain or hurt, or it can not be painful, but it's just a legitimate need that you have. And I would say this, that all of our true needs are legitimate. Right? And then we go off and we find an illegitimate way of meeting this legitimate need or addressing some legitimate pain in our life. And then what happens when we have this legitimate need, we meet it illegitimately, right? That's like trying to hammer a nail with a Rolex. What happens? There's destruction, there's pain. And then you develop a coping mechanism for this additional pain by meeting it illegitimately. And then now you're dependent on this illegitimate way of meeting this legitimate need. And so there's this cycle of legitimate need, illegitimate way of meeting this need, leading to more pain, and then a coping mechanism for the pain, and then further pain caused by the coping mechanism. And then you have another coping mechanism for the second pain. And so the cycle continues. And this is what is called addiction. Now the Bible's language for this is double sin. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13 says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Do you see the double sin there? You have a legitimate need, but instead of turning to a legitimate way of meeting that need, in this case, God... Right? You hew out your own cisterns. And you're going to fill it yourself. But the cistern is broken. So it's leaking. More mess, more pain. And the need isn't actually met. It can never, your cup can't ever be filled. Right? And so, the best bet for you, if you are an addict, if you have illegitimate ways of meeting legitimate needs, and you do because you're human, I do because I'm human, 
right? The best bet for me is to hit what they call rock bottom. Rock bottom can only happen when all of the enabling in our lives stop. Behind every great addict is a great enabler. There's somebody preventing you from experiencing the full consequences of your actions. They're absorbing some of the consequences for you in illegitimate ways, in ways that mimic love. Therefore, you don't fully experience what it's like to have that addiction, to live with that addiction in your life. And so you are able to continue on in your addicted lifestyle. As soon as they stop enabling you, allow you to feel the weight, to feel the full brunt of the pain, then you begin to deal for the first time maybe with what we might call reality. And this is what scriptures call Being given over. God stops enabling humanity and says, you want to die? You want to destroy your lives? You want to trust yourselves? You want to live by works and not by faith? You want to trust everything but me? Go ahead. Do that. And God begins to let go. And we're given over to our own self-destructive ways and pattern. And as we experience the full weight of our lives and the mistakes and what the, uh, what the writer of Romans calls foolishness, then, only then, at rock bottom, are we open to this idea of grace. That at the very bottom of your addiction, grace is available. But until we hit bottom, we reject it. We don't want anything to do with grace. We don't want anything to do with God. Now, put up verses 18 to 25 again. I'd like you to take a moment, either in your Bibles or on the wall here. I'd like you to read these verses again with the cycle of addiction and what I just described in mind. Keep that in the back of your mind and read these verses one more time. Okay? Read it for yourself. And when you've done, if you're done reading, would you look up so I know? Okay. Do you see the pattern of addiction in these verses? Is it standing out a little bit more? So what are your problems? What are the problems in your life? 
your legitimate needs? What are they? But let me ask another question. What is your first problem? According to this passage, what's the very first problem that needed to be solved in a legitimate way? What is the very first need of the human being? In other words, another way to ask that is what is the primary purpose for which human beings were created according to this passage? We're going to answer that question in a couple of minutes here. But a couple of observations about this passage. It's not my problem. Part of my problem is not that I live in darkness. It's not that I am in darkness. It's not that darkness is consuming me. But it's that I love darkness. I need darkness. I am addicted to darkness. Why? Why do I like darkness? Well, because darkness hides my evil deeds. Why are my deeds evil to begin with? Because I need to do evil things. Why do I need to do evil things? According to this passage, I need to do evil things because evil deeds suppress God in my life. You see that? That's verse 18 and 19. I need to do evil deeds in order to suppress God in my life. And when I do evil deeds, I need darkness around me because darkness hides the fact that my deeds are evil. Therefore, it's not just that darkness is upon me, but I choose darkness. I need darkness. I'm in cahoots with darkness. Darkness is my partner in crime. So my first problem, my very first problem is that I don't want to be with God. I don't want God in my life because I want to be God. Well, why do I want to be God? If he is God and he's the creator and he's the master and Lord over my life, why do I hate him so much? Why do I not want him in my life? Why do I reject him perpetually and daily? Why do I do that? Because I want to be God. Well, why do I want to be God? Why can't he be God? I want to be God because I hate what God means to me. What's the implication of having God in my life? It means that if he created me, and if he's the Lord of my life, and if everything I ever need or want comes from God, then I have to say thank you. I don't want to say thank you. What I want to say is you're welcome. See, grace, just as an idea, is an indictment against me. You know, if somebody's being gracious to me, you know what that means? That means I need grace. That means I'm not good enough by myself. I can't do it on my own. I'm not competent enough. I'm not sufficient in myself. Therefore, on a deep, deep level, I fundamentally reject grace. I have a psychological ego need to reject grace. I do not, 
I will not, I choose not to worship God. I will not say thanks to him because if I do, that means he's the giver of all good gifts. And if he is the giver, I have to say thanks. But I want to say you're welcome. I want to be somebody. I want to have substance and significance and worth and value apart from anyone else. I want to have control. I want to have power. And now here I am back in the garden. And so here we have the story of the fall. And the, and the passage says, deep, deep within myself, in my conscience, and out there, outside of me, in all of creation, these things testify, my conscience and creation testify to this truth. That I am not God. That I am powerless. That I was created to receive. I was created to say thank you. That I have this empty space in me. And God created me so that he can fill me with it. And in response, I would what the scriptures call worship. Give worship to him. But I don't want to. I don't want to. In a thousand different ways, on a daily basis, I demonstrate the fact that I do not want to say thank you. Not to God, not to you. I want to be somebody apart from anybody else. And I know this. I have this need to constantly suppress this truth about myself that I am weak apart from God, that I am valueless apart from God. There is no intrinsic human value apart from the fact that God loves me. There is no such thing as self-worth. There is no such thing as self-esteem. Apart from God. Apart from his relationship to me. Unless I am that is right with God. I am worthless. I am valueless. I have no hope. My future is futile. And I suppress this truth all day long with my evil deeds. And then I need darkness to cover up my evil deeds. And God says, Peter, how can I reach out to you? How can I convince you? How can I show you once and for all that I am the only lover of your soul? You don't even know how to love yourself. All you're going to do is destroy yourself and anybody else you can come in contact with. You have no hope apart from me. How can I show you this? And all I say is, away from me, Lord. Away from me, Lord. One of my favorite authors is um, M. Scott Peck. He's a famous Christian psychiatrist, author, and speaker. 
But he became a Christian while he was in the middle of writing his best-selling book, a book called A Role Less Traveled. And in that book, he describes his journey to how he basically converted himself to becoming a Christian as he was writing about life and the fall of man and just how messed up we are. And in, in the second half of this book, he says this. He says, while I don't profess to be a believer in any God, he says, I cannot help notice, but to notice the fact that every time I learned something new, the only way I would know that I was learning something new and true, something that is true, is that something within me already knew it to be true all along. And I was not learning anything new, but I was simply verifying the fact that it was true. And he goes on to say, describe how he has never learned a thing in his life, but only remembered. That's a deep statement. And it's sort of an existential statement, but you've got to think about that for a second. Have you ever learned anything new? I'm not talking about like math. You learn calculus, that's true. But whenever you learned about life, when a truth, an insight, a wisdom, piece of advice just resonated with you, you're not learning that for the first time. There is another something in you that's recognizing that as true and saying, yes, Peter, that's true. Grab onto it. And he says, what is that? What is that inner voice that tells you? And he calls it the all-knowing subconscious. And I want to tell you today, what Scott Peck was just beginning to discover, that's the image of God in which you are created. That's the spirit of God that gives life and breath and meaning and sustenance to everything in all of life. Apart from that image of God in which you were originally created, you will never learn anything. There is a voice of God that's speaking to you, that's regenerating you. Paul goes on later to say, because of creation and because of our conscience within, we are without excuse because we knew. We know deep in our hearts and looking all around us that God is true. He is love and he created us in his love to be loved. And for that, we worship him and we give thanks. And he is blessed forever. Amen. Apart from us. But come join the party. Um, about a month ago, actually exactly a month ago, um, I was away and uh, Susie called me. And uh, we were just kind of talking on the phone. And she says, Peter, I have to tell you something. And she started getting very nervous and serious. And uh, I knew bad news was coming. And uh, she says, you know, I was driving on 90 today. And uh, I was looking for directions on my phone. And a state trooper pulled me over. And uh, it happened so fast. I just, I didn't even know what to say. Um, but uh, she accused me of talking on my cell phone. She accused me of texting on my cell phone. And she gave me a ticket. And, uh, 
as those of you who are married can imagine the, the emotional tension in this conversation. And uh, she said, uh, I'm sorry. She was really nervous, and she made it a point to say it and get it over with and make sure she wasn't managing this or hiding this from me. And then I asked the first question that any loving husband would. I said, how much was the ticket for? (laughs) I don't even remember now. And uh, I did everything in my power to not be a jerk. (laughs) Actively. Passively, maybe, I failed. But I succeeded in an active way. And uh, at the end of the conversation, she said, Peter, I love you. And I said, good night. (laughs) And we hung up. And I had the most unfitful sleep that night. I could not shake from my withholding a few words, just three little words that would have released her and just reminded her why, you know, she loved me in the first place. I just couldn't do it. And so um, I just got up out of bed and I wrote this email to her and uh, I was going to tell this story, but I forgot that I actually had um, wrote it to her in email. And last night, Susie reminded me that it was over email. And so I found it, and here it is. I wrote, May 2nd, 2013. Hi, Susie. I'm writing this because I'm too chicken to tell you in person. I'm sorry, I'm sorry that I did not respond with graciousness when you told me about your ticket. I was annoyed that it happened. But not at you. I knew instantly that it could happen to anyone, especially me, since I'm always on the phone looking for directions. Actually, my first thought was that my profit from my recent eBay sale is going to be lowered. (laughs) Petty, you told me that you loved me, and I couldn't say it back. I've been thinking about it ever since, so this probably makes two times in a row that I've hurt your feelings. Sorry, I love you too. Now, Where's my awe? No? I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. I know. (sighs) Now, I knew the moment, the moment I said goodnight instead of I love you, that that was wrong. And here's the thing. Every single one of you knew the better thing to do would be to say I love you too. Every single one of you knew that. I can tell by your reaction. When I said, I said goodnight, There was a reaction from every single conscience in this room. How do you know that? How do you know that is the bigger and better, more loving thing to do? Why is that the superior thing to do? I'm telling you, it's not society. It's your conscience. It's the image of God in which you're created. Because even when society was teaching you, even when nurture and nature, heck, throw nature in there too, was teaching you that that's the better thing to do, there was the image of God in you resonating that said, that's true. That's right. That's good. That's beautiful. You need to go that way. That's the law of God in your hearts. What do you think about me right now as a human being, as a husband? Who cares what you think? (laughs) Who cares what I think? That's what verse 21b and verse 22 says. 
that our judgment is impaired because we love darkness. You have a need to judge me so that it takes a spotlight off of you. It doesn't matter what you think. Your foolish heart is darkened. Your opinion is worth zilch. And so is mine. That's Paul's point. We are so caught up in living this life of futility, of suppressing this truth of God in our hearts and in our world. And we are so busy doing evil deeds to suppress God and then collecting and gathering and hoarding darkness as a way to cover our evil deeds. Our opinion is worth nothing. Our judgment has no value, no authority, no merit. It's worth nothing in any kind of court whatsoever. That's harsh, but that's the truth, isn't it? Do you know what impaired judgment means? That means that you've had already too much alcohol. So by the time you're deciding that you're okay to drive, that judgment about your okayness to drive is already impaired. You have forsaken the right to exercise your own mind over yourself. And somebody else who has not been impaired in judgment gets to decide whether you are okay to drive or not. Your thoughts about yourself are worthless. You can be sitting here defending against what Paul is saying or what I'm trying to shout out to you. It doesn't matter. Your thoughts are already biased. You have a conflict of interest and you're impaired on top of that. The water that you're drinking, the Kool-Aid you've been drinking... It's from the cisterns you've dug up for yourselves, and that's been leaking your whole life. What are you drinking? You don't even know at this point. God only knows. And here's the real foolishness of our thinking. We thought if we don't have to worship God, then we don't have to worship anything at all. We get to just praise ourselves. We get to just give all the credit to ourselves. We can be strong and sufficient and enough and lovable, and likable, and respectable, powerful, all by ourselves. And Paul says, no. There's a law of thermodynamics here. It's called the conservation of worship. You know what the conservation of worship is? You know what the conservation of energy is? It means that you can't create or destroy energy, right? That it only changes forms. But the sum total of energy in a system remains constant. Conservation of worship means the same thing. Worship doesn't go anywhere. You don't worship God. What are you going to do? You have to worship something. And then in your foolishness, in your impaired judgment, in your drunkenness as it is, you're worshiping anything and everything. And you got this vacuum in your life and you're just sucking everything into your life. And none of these things are worthy. None of these things love you, care about you, see you have a plan for your life. You don't care. You don't even know how to care. You don't even know that you don't know how to care. You're completely lost, worshiping anything and everything. Imagine forsaking the creator for created things. That's what you have done. That's what I do on a daily basis. At that moment when I needed to tell Susie I love you too, I was worshiping something else and I did not have the wherewithal 
to be able to say three simple words that would have transformed that interaction and given life to both of us. I couldn't do it because I was too busy consumed with worshiping something. I needed to be right. Who cares? It's just a dumb little story in five minutes. But I couldn't see that, and you can't either. So our first problem is that we won't worship God. Verse 25 says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Now, if you read this in the Greek, and every commentator pointed this out, it's, it's not a lie in the Greek. It's actually the definite article. It's the, they exchanged the truth about God for the lie. This is the most fundamental lie that we believe. Every other lie is built on top of this lie and the lie that we exchanged. The truth that we exchanged for this lie is we worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. This is the very first problem. The most legitimate need we have because that's why we were created. To worship God, we refuse to do it and now we are addicted to everything else. You know, I'm in big trouble because I've only done the first part of my sermon (laughs) and time is up. So I'm going to call an audible here and I'm going to actually be a good boy and uh, not take advantage of my microphone and uh, end my sermon here, I guess. Now, there is good news and it's going to be another time. Uh consolation of wisdom so there's consolation that means comfort but uh, we'll have to do that next week so uh hold that tension okay so the point is we're pretty messed up and (laughs) so uh we'll end it there okay allow me to uh pray (laughs) god i'm getting hot up here and um And I pray that it's the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. I pray for our hearts here that you would convict us of what Paul calls foolishness. That we have become fools. And not only are we fools, but our foolish hearts go even further and it's darkened. We've committed the double sin. And so God, we confess that before you today. And we bring that truth before you and before your communion table. And as we remember you, the great consolation of wisdom, we uh, bring nothing to the table except our need and our confession. We have no boast, nothing that we can offer as a gift but our broken lives and the confession of our hearts. So have mercy on us, be kind to us. And I pray for all of us, especially me, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I do apologize for, um, but I did warn you, this is a crazy passage, and it really is Paul's fault.